Welcome to True Enough. We are your hosts. I am Catherine Duvall. And I am Brandon McCowan. True Enough is a podcast about true crime, both solved and unsolved. It's about notorious crimes. It's also about mysteries and the paranormal. This week's podcast is about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Art Theft. In the early morning hours of March 18, 1990, a vehicle pulled up near the side entrance of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men in police uniforms pushed the museum's buzzer and stated they were responding to a disturbance and requested to be let in. The guard on duty broke protocol and allowed them through the employee entrance. At the officer's request, he stepped away from the watch desk. He and a second security guard were handcuffed and tied up in the basement of the museum. The thieves departed with 13 of the gardener's works of art 81 minutes later. Thirteen pieces were taken that night. Five paintings, five drawings, an etching, an ancient beaker, and a bronze eagle finial that once topped a Napoleonic battle flag. The oldest item is more than 3,000 years old, the youngest about 130. They were created centuries and cultures apart in the Netherlands, France, and China. The artists worked in oils and charcoal and metal and ink, and the importance of their creations is almost incalculable. All that remains are microscopic bits of paint and canvas, and the frames, those famously vacant frames. The frames remain hanging, not per Isabella Stewart Gardner's will and its legendary mandate that her collection never be changed, but rather because they represent the hope that the masterpieces will be recovered. Among them was the concert, one of only 34 known paintings by Johannes Vermeer, and thought to be the most valuable unrecovered painting in the world. Also missing is the storm on the Sea of Galilee, Rembrandt's only seascape. Other paintings and sketches by Rembrandt, Degas, Manet, and Flink were stolen along with a relatively valueless eagle finial and Chinese goo. Experts were puzzled by the choice of artwork since more valuable works were left untouched. But despite more than 30,000 leads, hunches, forensic tests, psychic visions, jailhouse confessions, and hundreds of interviews with drug dealers, mobsters, retired police officers, journalists, museum directors, museum guards, and art dealers in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and South America, authorities are still no closer to knowing the whereabouts of any of these works. And although the art has been estimated for some time to be worth $500 million, the art market has led some experts to raise the figure significantly. Quote, it's at least $1 billion, says Otto Nauman, a senior vice president of Sotheby's and a dealer in old masters for more than 30 years. The Vermeer alone is worth nearly 500 million. 
great many theories about who might have been involved in the theft. Could the mob be responsible for the theft at the Gardner Museum? Whitey Bulger was one of the most powerful crime bosses in Boston during the era. Heading the Winter Hill Gang, he claimed he did not organize the heist and in fact sent his agents out in an attempt to determine who did because the robbery was committed on his turf, and he wanted to be paid tribute. FBI agent Thomas McShane investigated Bulger for his involvement. He determined that Bulger's strong ties with Boston police could explain how the thieves acquired legitimate police uniforms, or perhaps that real police were arranged to do the heist. Bulger also had a relationship with the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, McShane identified the bogus tripping of a fire alarm ahead of the heist as a calling card of the IRA and the rival Ulster Volunteer Force, UVF. Both organizations had agents in Boston at the time, and both had demonstrated capability in the past of pulling off art heists. McShane's investigation of Bulger and the IRA did not produce any evidence to tie them to the theft. According to Charlie Hill, a retired art and antiquities investigator for Scotland Yard, Bulger gave the Gardner work to the IRA, and they were most likely in Ireland. The Merlino Gang The FBI announced significant progress in their investigation in March of 2013. They reported, quote, with a high degree of confidence, end quote, that they identified the thieves, which they believed were members of a criminal organization based in the Mid-Atlantic and New England. They also felt, quote, with the same confidence, end quote, that the artwork was transported to Connecticut and Philadelphia in the years following the theft, and with an attempted sale in Philadelphia in 2002, their knowledge of what happened after this was limited, and so they requested the public's help to locate and return the artwork. In 2015, the FBI stated both thieves were deceased. Though the FBI did not publicly identify any individuals, Sources familiar with the investigation say they were associated with a gang from Dorchester. The gang was loyal to Boston Mafia boss Frank Salome, also known as Cadillac Frank, and ran their operations out of an auto repair shop run by criminal Carmelo Marlino. Marlino's associates may have gained knowledge of the museum's weaknesses after gangster Louis Royce cased it as early as 1981. He devised plans with an associate to light up smoke bombs and rush the galleries amidst the confusion. In 1982, when undercover FBI agents were investigating Royce and his associates for an unrelated art theft, they learned of their interest in robbing the Gardner Museum and warned the museum of the gang's plan. Royce was in prison at the time of the robbery. Royce shared his plan with others and believes associate Stephen Rossetti may have ordered the robbery or shared it with someone else. Robert Garanti and Robert Gentile. Among those associated with the Marlino gang were Robert Garanti and Manchester, Connecticut gangster Robert Gentile. Garanti died from cancer in 2004, but his widow, Elaine, 
told the FBI in 2010 that her husband had previously owned some of the paintings. She claimed that when her husband got sick with cancer in the early 2000s, he gave the paintings to Gentile for safekeeping. Gentile denied the accusations, claiming he was never given them and knew nothing about their whereabouts. Federal authorities indicted Gentile on drug charges in 2012, likely in an attempt to pressure Gentile for information about the Gardner works. He submitted to a polygraph test, which indicated he was lying when he denied any knowledge of the theft or location of the artwork. Gentile maintained he was telling the truth and demanded a retest. During the retest, he said Elaine had once showed him the missing Rembrandt self-portrait, to which the polygraph machine indicated he was telling the truth. Gentile's lawyer felt that the veracity of Gentile's claims were being affected by the large presence of federal agents and requested a smaller meeting in hopes that it would get Gentile to speak honestly. In a more intimate meeting, Gentile maintained that he did not have any information. A few days later, the FBI stormed Gentile's house in Manchester, Connecticut with a search warrant. The FBI found a secret ditch beneath a false floor in a backyard shed, but found it empty. Gentile's son explained that the ditch flooded a few years prior, and his father was upset about whatever was stored in there. In the basement, they found a copy of the Boston Herald from March of 1990 reporting the theft, along with a piece of paper indicating what each piece of art might sell for on the black market. Beyond this, no conclusive evidence was found to indicate he ever had the paintings. Gentile went to prison for 30 months on drug charges. If he had any information about the theft, at no point did he opt to share it, which would have reduced his sentence or freedom from prison. After getting out of prison, he spoke with investigative reporter Stephen Kirkjian, claiming he was framed by the FBI. He explained how the imprisonment negatively impacted his finances and personal life. He also explained that the list found in his basement was written up by a criminal trying to broker return of the works from Garanti and was talking to Gentile as an intermediary. When asked what could have been in the ditch, Gentile could not recall, but believed it could have been a small motor. Could the heist have been an inside job with one of the guards helping? Security guard Rick Abbott was investigated early on because of his suspicious behavior on the night of the theft. When on his patrol, Abbott briefly opened and shut a side door, a move which some believe could have been a signal to the thieves parked outside. Abbott told authorities he did this routinely to ensure the door was locked. One of Abbott's colleagues told journalists that if Abbott had opened the door routinely as he maintained, supervisors would have seen it on computer printouts and put a stop to it. More suspicion has been drawn from the museum's motion detectors, which did not detect any movement in the blue room during the 81 minutes the thieves were in the museum. The only footsteps in the room that night were Abbott's during his security patrol. A security consultant reviewed the motion detector equipment several weeks after the theft and determined they were operating correctly. Abbott maintains his innocence, and the FBI agent overseeing the case in its early years determined the guards were too incompetent and foolish to have pulled off the crime. 
2015, the FBI released a security video from the museum on the night before the theft, showing Abbott buzzing in an unidentified man into the museum to converse at the security desk. Abbott told investigators he could not recall the incident or recognize the man, and so the FBI requested the public's assistance. Several former museum guards came forward and said the stranger was Abbott's boss, the museum's deputy security chief. Though why the security chief never came forward is a mystery. Was local criminal Bobby Donati responsible for the robbery? Criminal Bobby Donati was murdered in 1991 in the midst of a gang war within the Patriarca crime family. His involvement in the Gardner theft was suspected after notorious New England art thief Miles J. Connor Jr. spoke with authorities. Connor was in jail at the time of the heist, but he believed Donati and criminal David Houghton were the masterminds. Connor had worked with Donati in past art heists and claimed the two cased the Gardner Museum where Donati took interest in the finial. Connor also claimed that Houghton visited him in jail after the heist and said that he and Donati organized it and were going to use the paintings to get Connor out of jail. If this is true, they likely borrowed the idea from Connor himself as he returned art to reduce sentences in the past. Like Donati, Houghton also died within two years of the robbery, though from an illness rather than murder. Connor told investigators he could assist in returning the Gardner works in exchange for the museum's posted reward and his freedom. When investigators did not give in to Connor's demands because of his lack of evidence, he suggested they speak with criminal and antiques dealer William P. Youngworth. Acting on Connor's lead, the FBI opened a case on Youngworth and conducted raids on his home and antique store properties in the 90s. The raids caught the attention of journalist Tom Mashberg, who began talking with Youngworth in 1997 about the theft. One night in August 1997, Youngworth called Mashberg and told him he had proof he could return the Gardner paintings under the right conditions. That night, Youngworth picked up Mashberg from the Boston Herald offices and drove him to a warehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Youngworth led him inside to a storage unit with several large cylinder tubes. He removed one painting from its tube, unfurled it, and showed it to Mashberg under a flashlight. It appeared to Mashberg to be the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He noticed cracking along the canvas, and the edges were cut in a manner consistent with the museum's reports, as well as Rembrandt's signature on the ship's rudder. Mashberg wrote about his experience in the Boston Herald, leaving out details to hide Youngworth's identity and the painting's location. He reported that his, quote, informant, presumably Youngworth, told him the robbery was pulled off by five men and identified two. Donati was one of the robbers, and Houghton was responsible for moving the art to a safe house. The FBI discovered the location of the warehouse several months later and raided it, finding nothing. The enthusiasm of Youngworth's claims and the authenticity of the painting shown to Mashberg is disputed. Youngworth supplied paint chips to Mashburn, and federal authorities reported that they were indeed from Rembrandt's era, but did not match oils used for the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The way Mashburn described the painting 
as being unfurled has also been scrutinized as the stolen painting was covered with a heavy varnish that would not roll easily. Federal authorities and the museum began working with Youngworth after Mashburg's story was published, but Youngworth made negotiations difficult. He would not work with authorities unless his demands could be met, which included full immunity and Connor's release from jail. The authorities were skeptical of Youngworth's veracity and only offered partial immunity. The United States attorney overseeing the case eventually ceased talks with Youngworth unless he could provide more reliable evidence that he had access to the Gardner works. Youngworth again provided a vial of paint chips, purportedly from the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and 25 color photographs of the painting. A joint statement from the museum and federal investigators announced that the chips were not from the stolen Rembrandts, though they did test as being from 17th century paintings and could potentially be from the concert. In 2014, investigative reporter Stephen Kirkjian wrote to gangster Vincent Ferreira, Donati's superior during the gang war, and inquired if he had information about the Gardner theft. He received a callback from an associate of Ferreira, who explained the FBI was wrong in suspecting the Marlino gang's involvement and claimed that Donati organized the robbery. The caller explained that Donati visited Ferreira in jail about three months before the theft after the latter was charged for murder, and told Ferreira that he was going to do something to get him out of jail. Three months later, Ferreira heard news about the Gardner theft, after which Donati visited him again and confirmed to Ferreira that he was involved in the robbery. He claimed to have buried the artwork and would start negotiation for his release once the investigation cooled down. Negotiations never occurred because Donati was murdered. Kirkjian believes Donati was motivated to free Ferreira from prison because Ferreira could protect him in the gang war. A friend of Garanti also corroborated that Donati organized the robbery and that Donati gave the paintings to Garanti when he became concerned for his own safety. Donati was close friends with Garanti. The two were seen at a social club in Revere, shortly before the robbery with a bag of police uniforms. In 1994, museum director Anne Hawley received an anonymous letter from someone who claimed to be attempting to negotiate a return of the artwork. The writer explained that they were a third-party negotiator and did not know the identity of the thieves. They explained that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence, but as the opportunity had passed, there was no longer a motive to keep the artwork, and they wanted to negotiate a return. The writer explained that the artwork was being held in a non-common law country under climate control conditions. They wanted immunity for themselves and all others involved, and $2.6 million, which would be sent to an offshore bank account at the same time the art was handed over. If the museum was interested in negotiating, they should print a coded message in the Boston Globe. To establish credence, the writer conveyed information only known by the museum and the FBI at the time. Hawley felt this was a strong lead. She contacted the FBI, who then contacted the Globe, and the coded message was printed in the May 1st, 1994 edition of the Boston Globe. Hawley received a second letter a few days later, in which the writer acknowledged the museum was interested in negotiating, 
but had become fearful of what they perceived was a massive investigation by federal and state authorities to determine their identity. The writer explained that they needed time to evaluate their options, but Holly never heard from the writer again. Gardner Museum Heist. For me, this was fantastic because it's local to both of us, relatively speaking. Um, and it's something that uh, has been a mystery for years. And um, I just, I kind of found it fascinating. I mean, the same time I find anything about the mob fascinating. I'm weird like that. Um, but so what do you think about the theory about the mob, Brandon? About the mob, I think... Um... I think it's very possible, and, and and I think who else would have a niche interest in art so much that they would uh, either participate in the heist or employ a team to 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 conduct the heist? Would the mob really employ a team to conduct the heist? I mean, these are not, you know. As far the mob is not sorry, mobsters. The mob is not incredibly intelligent. A, I don't know that mobsters hold a great value in artworks. I mean, they hold value in it's something that they can bargain with or something like that, but not in the art itself, at least to my knowledge. Granted, I have never met personally, to my knowledge, a mobster. I, I, I hear what you're saying, though. Um, I, I think it's possible that somebody who was involved with the mob pulled off the heist or perhaps the art was handed off to somebody in the mob we have names brought up and this is possible suspects or people in the know like miles connor uh, and bobby donati uh, that were were familiar with museum art these these people were had mob connections and so what resources could they pull pull upon pull from to conduct a heist like this or or or, or, or what people could could do this with such knowledge about the art that they wanted to find and, and, and steal well i know connor for example um he was very adept at at art theft this that was what he did he was in prison at the time um so it definitely was not him but he also he and Bobby Donati partnered on a lot of art thefts. So for me, the most likely scenario is that Bobby Donati either was the mastermind under the tutelage of Connor. Um, Bobby Donati learned a lot and learned the art appreciation. And also uh, I know Connor and Donati cased the place before, um, before Connor went to prison and Bobby Donati took a particular interest in the gold eagle finial that was on top of the Napoleonic flag. Uh, and Connor believes that it was Bobby Donati that pulled it off too. And that's like from a huge art theft guy to, to, to everyone basically saying, this is who I think did it. Another interesting thing is about, about the heist itself, which points some mob connection out to me is, the way certain pieces of art were treated and certain other pieces of art were mishandled or the frames were just smashed. But, like, and, and I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I do. But the thing is, if, if you are just the mob and you're looking for a payday, why would you walk past more expensive works of art to go for just those pieces? Because 
the expert in that group is not with you at the time. They're ah. there on they're on some other floor looking at the pieces they want to find, and the and they were told to get these other pieces specifically. And once they got those pieces, they were like, "Hey, this looks kind of cool. Grab that and grab and smash and grab and yeah, yeah." yeah. And so, okay, the, so, okay. the, so the person who's the expert treats these certain pieces with respect and, and the care they deserve, um, with with the fragility that they have. Other people are like, "Oh, it's art. I'll just." I'll just smash this glass and, and grab it, and grab the Degas sketches and wrap it up and blah, you know and bring yeah, it. And yeah, and so I, no, think, yeah, yeah. I so I I feel like in this team there were a mixture of muscle and brains. And, okay, and I, that to me says mob connections for some reason or another. Okay. Like, like maybe it's not so clear, but for me it says <laughs> like I imagine. It's like, it's I, don't, like, I don't know how muscle it's, and brains equals almost, mob. <laughs> well, it's almost like to me it looks. It's almost like a Batman villains team. It's like the Riddler with his muscle, and he the, and he brings the Joker along, who has like a big hammer. Is like, hey, right. look at that! Yeah, and they're, like the Riddler's like, oh, I'll get this special piece just for me. And the Joker's like, smash! Yes. This is mine. So it's very different approaches to the thing they. I wanted. agree. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Okay. Uh, and oddly, it makes more sense when you put the superhero <laughs> villains in it. I don't really know why. Um, so, what do you think about it being? possible that um the guard um abbeth was in on it as well the really mysterious thing that that points that i i don't really think that he's involved but he did he really didn't do himself any favors immediately afterwards by leaving the state to go to that concert it, it didn't help his cause um, well, I mean, also that he opened that other door that he said he opened all the time, which he hadn't because they would have had a record of it, right. which a lot of people think was signaling um, the the thieves that it was okay to come in. And the mysterious guy who he'd let in the night before, who somebody said, one of the other guards said was his supervisor, yet the supervisor never comes forward and says, oh, that was me there, which I find very mysterious and a little sketchy. Um, I mean, if your supervisor's there, one would think that he would be the first one to say, oh, yeah, I was there. That's me on the video. Did anyone ever ask him if he was the person in the video? Uh, there's no record of any testimony or any admission whatsoever of the supervisor, yeah. which I find very strange. Yeah, I thought in the research, I remember reading someplace that people could point him out in the video and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's his supervisor. Please, please don't reach out to the supervisor and ask, is that you? Right. Th that's why there's no there's no testimony or recorded interview or anything, at least that I have found. And perhaps that's something that the FBI did and they're keeping that under wraps and that just was never made public. But it just seems very odd to me that there's never been any admission. And I don't know why the if the FBI was keeping that under wraps, why that particular piece of evidence? It doesn't make sense. Um it just, I mean, to me also, Abbott seems very sketchy because he is a guy who at the time was known to show up to his job drunk or high. At one point, he had like a party in the museum at night and brought all of his friends in there unbeknownst to apparently anyone, which I don't really know how that is possible, but that was something that I read, which seemed a little odd to me. I think the guy just really did not like his job. Yeah. I think he was just bad at his job, but is that, is that, you know, being bad at your job, is that equal criminal intent? I don't think well, so. Th I mean, there was also the, um, the censor uh, in the blue room that only recorded his footsteps 
that they suspect he turned off because pieces were taken from the blue room, but yet there were no further footsteps recorded. Right. Which was very odd. Which I'm wondering if that's part of the work that the heist team did in when they got there, they'd know we need to shut off these measures too. But they just shut off that one and they left the other ones right, on? That yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, unless they weren't aware of the other ones. I'm not... I don't know how they would be aware of just one and not the other. Right. Generally, at least according to Connor, um, you go through every little bit of security when you are planning on robbing a museum where are the windows where are the alarms are there motion detectors blah 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 you look through all, for all of that stuff um at least that's according to connor and if donati was part of it which i suspect he was he would have done the very same thing because that's what they did when they robbed the museum of fine arts in boston too mm -hmm. so so there's that personally i think that Donati did it. I think that he, I'm not so sure that he passed off the art to anyone else. Um, I think he did indeed bury it. And I think he was murdered before he could give the art to anyone else. I am not so sure that Mashberg actually saw really the, uh, the storm of the sea of Galilee painting. Um, I think that he, it was dark. I'm not so sure that I'm not so sure that he knew exactly what he was looking at. I mean, he swears up and down that that's what it was, but the paint chips are not from the, that painting. Yeah. I mean, it's just one example of there's all these actors in this mystery that are almost red herringish yes. in, in a sense. Like, I, and I think it what's, what's happened is that the authorities have done no favors in saying that if you have information about this, uh, this heist that we can cut you a deal on your, whatever is happening to you. We can give you money or we can, cut, we can cut your prison sentence or. Well, now the statute of limitations has run right now. Out. Now it's run out, but, but back in the day when they were investigating yeah. it. So yeah. it's almost like a free for all. It's like, and if, if it's, if it's, if the heist. And is, here's this reward too. Yeah. And yeah. If, if the heist is mob associated, then, then mob members have maybe a passing idea of it happening and who could be, be involved. And people may have familiarity with other people who were, fans of museum art uh, and it with that just that passing familiarity you can be like well i think i have an idea about who uh, possibly did that heist fork over that reward cut that sentence and right? and, and and even <laughs> if it doesn't lead anywhere they're going to try that venue and see how far the fbi or the authorities will will help them out and well, it ends I up agree. going nowhere i agree uh and i think that's happened that happens in a lot of cases people think that's a way they can try to must manage a deal with, with the authorities and it never works out because they can't, they can't. There's nothing to back it up. There's nothing to back it up. And I think in the, in the very few instances where someone could possibly back it up, which we can talk about later, they, the FBI is really dodgy about like, they, it's like, give us all the information that you have and we'll give you a deal or will you, or will you just go find the artwork and, shut me out of right i mean and and that that i think is a lot of the reason for hey i have a lead and here it is and then they're like well we'll give you partial immunity for this but oh no wait just tell us yeah. where the art is and, and all the research were you know you and i looked at it's like and he mentioned or she you know she mentioned this lead to the fbi 
as part of like, the deal making process. And also all of a sudden, if I raise that place. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I mean, that's not exactly, you know, tiptoeing into the scene and doing investigative work that is running in with like a battering ram and being like, hey, we're here. So so if you establish that precedent, what kind of deals anyone can make? I agree. I agree. I feel like it just was not done. Personally, that's not how I would do it. Um, Grant and I, maybe that's why I'm not in the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But I mean, it's it's also very interesting to me, and this is just kind of like a side note. I did get in touch with um, Anthony Amore. Um, he did he did not want to comment on any theories, um, and frankly, gave me very little information. <laughs> um, I asked him if he would like to discuss the case with me. I did not request to set up a formal interview, nor did I offer him money or anything like that for a formal interview. I'm not really sure why he was so tight-lipped about it. Um, I mean, he told me a couple of things off the record that I can't mention. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, re- I reached out to a bunch of people and um, I, I do find it very interesting that prior, and this is just a side note, prior to the theft, um, the museum was on the verge of bankruptcy. And since the theft, now that they display the empty frames, um, they have hundreds of people that come into that museum just to look at the empty frames and just to hear the story about the theft. And I do know that Anthony Amore goes around the country uh, discussing the art theft, though he was not an employee uh, of the museum at the time of the theft. He's also written several books um, about the theft, again, though he was not an employee at the time. Um, and he sat down and had a very frank and interesting conversation with Miles Connor. Amore, by his own admission, spent a great deal of time with Connor, and Connor told Amore. Uh, about all of his exploits as a thief, including multiple art heists, including the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. I, I have a quote here specifically from Amore that says, quote, I liked him from the minute I met him in 2015, Amore says. When I sat down and started asking him about the gardener that first day, he told me everything. Now, the museum is doing very well. Well, with COVID, I'm not so sure that it is still doing very well. Mm. But prior to COVID, it was doing very well because people do flock to the museum to hear about the theft. And it just kind of made me think and it just kind of made me wonder if the art is returned, the Gardner Museum would have probably a couple of really good years of people going to see the art that was stolen and things like that. And then after that, it would just be another small museum. And frankly, not a lot of people had heard of the Gardner Museum until the theft. So I find that very interesting. And again, I have no evidence or anything. I just think it's a very interesting side note that... The museum has done very well since the theft and while they display the empty frames, is it possible that 
maybe somebody gave them the art back and they have the art in storage and they're just not displaying the art because they're making more money off of the story about the theft. Unsolved mysteries gather more attention than solved mysteries, I would say. I would say that too. And again, I have no evidence whatsoever. I just found it to be a very interesting side note. And we really don't like to talk about things that we don't have evidence of, which is why I'm kind of prefacing that with, I don't have any evidence. It's pure, pure theory. It's pure, pure theory. speculation. I just think it's very interesting. And pair that with the information the FBI has given as of late, the latest thing they've said about the heist and, and, and the paintings is that we know where they are, but we can't get to them. Doesn't sound possible to me. It doesn't sound. I find that very sketchy. I feel like the, I feel like the FBI in part is kind of like, we're coming to get you. This is yeah. what we have. We're not going to tell you, but we're getting close. Look out. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like they are on one hand saying that to make, whoever has them nervous. But on the other hand, if the FBI does indeed know where they are, go and get them. Like, what are you waiting for? Right. All these years, seriously, if you know where they are, what are you, what are you waiting for? And what other crime has that ever, has that circumstance ever happened where, uh, if, I mean, if you don't have evidence to, you know, indict somebody or convict somebody, uh, that's understandable. That's one thing. But if you say, I know, where this lost property is, but we can't get it. Who, like, I don't understand how that works. I don't either. I don't either. It's a kind of a little mystery, which is why I don't put a lot of weight in what they're saying. I just think that it's something to make whoever has the art, if someone does indeed still have it, if it hasn't been destroyed or is just plain lost, I think they want whoever that is to panic. If you want to unload something that expensive and that big, it's going to garner a lot of attention. So perhaps they're saying that just to make someone a little jittery to kind of garner a little bit of, uh, to make that person start making some phone calls to, you know, do maybe they have a suspect. I mean, frankly, I think it was Donati. I think that he either buried it and then he was murdered or it's just lost. I think that we, someone would have ratted on somebody else by now. Yeah, I, I think that whoever was involved in the heist had mob connections and or were in the mob themselves. And over the course of uh, the period after the crime, they were killed. And, and, yeah. And if they were put in prison, then and if they're still in prison, then why wouldn't they use the information about the heist? to to get a lesser sentence it, it makes no sense no I, I agree i agree and they've put multiple people in jail with kind of pressing them to say listen you could get a lighter sentence if you give us the art and nobody has come forward right and and the people that would that would present repercussions for quote-unquote snitching uh, from that around that time are gone. They're dead yeah. too, or they're in prison too. Right. So, like, there's no ramifications for for um, revealing what you know now. Uh, agreed. Agreed. And again, the statute of limitations has run out on this, so you couldn't even be prosecuted for it. 
So I think it's a case of the team that did the deed are no longer around. And the sad thing is that I'm not sure if the, if the, if the paintings are possibly destroyed or if they're hidden, but even if someone has them or sees them, like I've done research on this case and I can't tell you from memory what the paintings look like. <laughs> right. And who can, you know, it's not like a picture on a milk carton. It's, it's, it's a very niche interest of right. of knowing what a painting looks like. And the specifics of that painting, like a storm in the sea of Galilee with, Re- with Rembrandt's signature on the rudder of the boat. Like, okay. <laughs> you could see this on a hundred different walls. And if you're not a big museum art expert, you may just be like, oh, nice painting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I, I agree. I agree. I think, frankly, either the paintings were found and they're in storage and the museum is milking it, or the paintings were buried by Donati. Um, paintings are hidden or buried. They're hidden or buried or possibly were destroyed. They either won't be found or some super expert with more resources than you or I have will one day in the far future find these paintings and bring them back Agreed. to where they belong and that's true enough for me and that's true enough for me as well if you have any information regarding the theft at the Gardner Museum please email us at trueenoughnation at gmail.com. This ends this episode of True Enough. This episode was produced, written, and edited by your co-hosts, Catherine Duvall and Brandon McCowan. Thanks go out to our sources, which are listed in our show notes. All music was provided by Anchor.fm. True Enough is created by us and distributed through Anchor. You can find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash true-enough. From there, you can message us, or you can now email us at trueenoughnation at gmail.com. So please send us your questions, thoughts, opinions, and hate mail about any of our episodes. Also, please subscribe to us in whichever podcast app you like, so you don't miss our next episode, where we try to determine what is true enough to be believed.